We are on air, and I am joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ken Pendleton. Ken, how are you? I am well, Josh. I'm probably getting more sleep than you these days. How he, Josh has the newborn. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. You know, she enjoys uh, the playoffs for both the Bruins and the Celtics, so it's been fun. She made it to the NCAA Final Four. That's pretty cool. Um, so she's quickly immersed herself into sports fanhood, and I haven't bust her bubble by talking about some of the business side of it. Yeah, yeah, you wait till she gets to her basic bath in elementary school for that. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So we had a really interesting topic that we are scheduled to talk about today in terms of talking about this idea of whether or not winning can be fun. And this is kind of on the heels of you and I have, having spent the last few years really examining what makes high performance cultures work well. And so we thought that maybe um, you who are uniquely positioned to talk about Coach Willie Taggart, and maybe you could tell us why you're such a unique authority on him. Okay. Uh, I grew up uh, in, in Florida, and I went to Florida State. So let me maybe the best way to illustrate how big my devotion is to Florida State is, uh, Josh, pick a season between 1980 and 2000. Let's go with 1987. 1987, Florida State was 11 and one. They lost to Miami 26 to 25 in what would turn out to be the national title game. They had really big wins over the Rose Bowl winner, Michigan State, Auburn in Auburn, and, and beat Nebraska in the Fiesta Bowl. So I grew up, <laughs> even into my adulthood, a very obsessive Florida State fan. But I came out to Oregon in 1990 to study uh, philosophy at the at the U of O, and this was right uh, the pre University of Oregon program had just gone to its first bowl game the year before, and it was sort of uh, I hate to use this word, but sort of cute from my perspective, <laughs> and uh, and so I in 1994 they had this miraculous run to the Rose Bowl, and so I sort of had a front row seat to watching this program grow and grow, and uh, and I, I can't say that it's ever replaced FSU. That'll never happen. And but I I watched it very closely and two things other I'll add really quickly. There's not a week in my life that I go without having someone remind me about the Rose Bowl game three years ago. And the second thing is, since Willie Taggart moved from Oregon to FSU, there's not two days that go by without someone complaining to me about Taggart leaving for Florida State. <laughs> and yeah, there are a lot of bruised egos uh, in Eugene around having someone uh, as talented as Coach Taggart leave. But I think it'd be fun for us to spend a little time trying to pick that apart and, and understand, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Maybe there is a different type of fit going on here. Um, but what about some of the movement, Ken? When you're talking about both Fisher and Taggart moving, what are some of the drivers behind that from your perspective? Right. Yeah, so let's back up real quickly a year ago. Willie Taggart took the Oregon job. Jimbo Fisher was in the middle of what was about a 10-year contract at Florida State. No one that, that I, you know, in, in, at least in the public, domain had any idea that Jimbo Fisher would possibly leave Florida State. And, and this is important because, as we learned later, Willie Taggart had grown up in a Florida State fan. His family were huge Florida State fans. And so when Jimbo Fisher suddenly decided to leave for Texas A&M, Willie Taggart was, you know, you know, couldn't resist taking the job I think he'd always dreamed of having. So he didn't leave Oregon for money. He didn't leave Oregon because he, you know, because he didn't think there was a chance of being very successful here. He had a very good recruiting class coming into place. He left because this was the job he had always wanted. And I don't think he could have conceived of it being available a year ago. I, I always like to tell the story that when Lou Holtz took the job at Notre Dame, I mean, at Minnesota, he put in his contract that if the Notre Dame job came available, he could leave. 
because he could sort of foresee that maybe Jerry Faust wasn't going to work out at Notre Dame. <laughs> and so after the 85 season, Minnesota couldn't say anything because, you know, he Holtz had foreseen this and put it in the contract, whereas Taggart couldn't have foreseen Fisher leaving. Now, Fisher had had great success with the national title in 2013 and resuscitated the program after Bobby Bowden departed. But things had gone, even the 2014 team, the team that lost to Oregon in the Rose Bowl, didn't play up to its potential. I think any honest person would have to say the program had been stagnating the last four seasons. And so when people talk about why Fisher left, I think there's a bunch of possibilities. One is he went from 5,000, 5 million a year to about seven and a half million a year. So, so that's could be one. I don't want to discount that, but he, but there was also a bigger issue. He was going to have to release half of his coaching staff. And I think, you know, coach Fisher is very loyal and I don't think he liked the prospect of doing that in, in, at FSU. Whereas if he went to Texas A&M, he could gracefully say, I'm making a transition to a different part of the country. The third thing, and I, and I don't think people should underestimate this is, if Jimbo Fisher had stayed at FSU one more year because of the length of his contract, and he FSU would have been stuck with him if he had another year like that. And I actually think he'd give him credit in the sense that I think he saw that things were at Florida State were stagnating, and that by going to Texas A&M, he essentially was getting a fresh start, and it benefited both him because he got a fresh start, and it benefited FSU because they could make a fresh start. Enter Willie Taggart. And so I think there were you know, a bunch of factors involved in this transition. And you're talking about programs that are all considered destination programs and coaches who are all considered at the top of their field. And so what's particularly interesting to me is that you're talking about fit and alignment. And can you explain a little bit more about Taggart in particular as an example to understand what type of culture he brings? And then we maybe can see why this makes even more sense than anything other than, you know, it being a passion play, but this is actually a fairly well thought out decision on his part. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk about what the University of Oregon has built since, you know, re, you know, since that Rose Bowl appearance. And, and, and I would argue that with the, with the, you know, that, that they've actually joined Nebraska from the 1960s through the end of the nineties in Penn state during the, you know, the first 30 years of the Joe Paterno era and probably having as, as distinct a brand as there is in college football. So Oregon's brand, very unlike Nebraska's, was about being state-of-the-art at everything. The, they upgraded the facilities to the point where they were debatably the best in the country. The offense was, the, you know, was, was played the sort of, you know, was, you know, sort of most exciting, most dynamic. Um, the... The, the, the analytics that Chip Kelly used and the way he wanted to micromanage his players' lives was really, you know, taking, you know, taking data to a different, you know, to a different level. And so in that sense, Willie Taggart is a bit of a mismatch because he's a throwback coach. It's less quantifiable. As a matter of fact, apparently Willie Taggart's not real big on analytics. Willie Taggart's about consciously working on a, on a culture, right? And, and he did at Oregon. He wanted to, he kept the style of offense, which he had developed at University of South Florida or bought into. And, but at the same time, and he, you know, he wanted to go ahead and reintroduce this idea of, of, you know, of accountability and discipline and trying to bring, the, like, like FSU, Oregon's culture had disintegrated under Helfrich at the end. And he wanted, his first job was to sort of revitalize that, get people to feel accountable to their potential, to each other, et cetera, right? And, and so, but it was a bit of a, his, his disdain, apparent disdain for analytics 
wasn't really in, in keeping with a lot of what the you know what Oregon is really trying to do. And I I don't want to overstate that because I think there's a lot of ways in fit. I think Oregon would have been quite happy to keep him. But in this sense, I think he makes a he he, he makes an almost perfect fit for Florida State because because like Oregon, they need they were their culture was sort of devolving, and and he's he's bringing in a message that's infusing that culture, and yet at the same time. He's actually questioning, you know, as we can talk about in a little bit, he's questioning one of the most deeply held notions of what football in the South is about, which is in the South, football is mostly considered about hard work and it's not supposed to be fun. You know, whether you, you want to talk about Bear Bryant 50 years ago or you want to talk about Nick Saban now, the idea that football is fun, that practice is fun, that, that off-season conditioning programs are fun, that's really quite foreign to, to, you know, what most Southern way, most people in the South would actually view football, but that's actually what he's trying to introduce at Florida state. So the first day of practice, he has music playing rap music, country music, apparently all manner of music in between during breaks, the players are having a dance off. <laughs> he's, he's, he, he and other assistant coaches are running down the field, high-fiving players when they make big plays. One of the assistant coaches talks about playing state-of-the-art video games. I don't even know what those state-of-the-art video games are myself. But the point is he's playing them and what a way to relate to, you know, to recruits, right? And yet at the same time, the old school part of Taggart is there too. He invited Bobby Bowden back to Florida State for the spring game last Friday or last Saturday. Bobby Bowden only attended one game during the Jumbo Fisher era during 2013. 300 former FSU players have come back. So he, you know, that long-term love he's had for FSU, that tradition, he's playing into that, but with a new twist of how to relate to the athletes. And right now, from a Florida State fan's point of view, this is one of the all-time great honeymoons. Florida State's 2019 or 18, 19 recruiting class is now ranked number one in the country. Now, a lot can change in, in, in the next 10 months or so, but that is something that you want to get in, you know, fan base excited in the South where recruiting is the second most important sport after football have a prospective number one recruiting class. And I think a lot of us attribute that to something that Taggart brought to the table that Fisher didn't. So Ken, how is it that someone who is by nature kind of an old school guy, right? In terms of, as you say, not relying heavily on the buzzing analytics and trying to see every um, advantage and looking for market inefficiencies and all this. How is he therefore so innovative all at the same time in terms of his ability to, to relate to the next generation of football players? Well, I, my deeper, deep theory on all this is that there's an expression that's used in, in academia and in business, what's get quanti what gets quantified gets measured. And most of the things that, uh, that have been, most of the things that the Ducks are famous for in terms of innovation are quantifiable and measurable. The cost of those facilities, they, they, you know, they, they, you know, there's all sorts of marketing evidence about what that, means the style of offense could be broken down to you know what what it means to run all these additional plays per game how often should you run Justin Herbert at quarterback compared to if you're going to play the you know the, the port you know the backup for him right these kind of things are all given you know the kind of things Kelly did with trying to regulate lifestyle choices in such a way they're very measurable culture however is still largely in the realm of of the qualitative I don't think it's going to be very easy. And, you know, you and I are discovering writing a book. I don't, there's not a lot of numbers uh, other than win-loss records, good or bad, that actually tell you whether a culture is, you know, that it, it, during the process tell you whether a culture is being successful or not. And so I think, but it's what I think Taggart sees 
and is that athletes are changing, right? That the old days, and you know, Dabo Sweeney at Clemson gets this to a large degree too. Uh, that in the old days, you you could yell at athletes, you'd tell them what they do. They knew they had no choice but to do it, and they followed suit. That very authoritarian parental coaching model was in place. And both Sweeney and Taggart recognize that modern athletes have to work as hard or harder than their predecessors, but their motivations are very different, right? That they they don't accept this idea that you sacrifice now for a possibility of success later. So there's a an English soccer manager, Jose Mourinho of Chelsea, and before the, the, the 70, uh, 2007 FA Cup final, uh, when he was managing Manchester United, or Chelsea against Manchester United, he told his players, do you want to have fun now or after the game? And, and I think that's still the attitude of most coaches. It's not supposed to be fun now. The fun comes when you win, right? But, the, but I think you're seeing a generational change, and I think Willie Taggart, who, who brought in a much younger staff than Jimbo Fisher, a much more African-American staff than Jimbo Fisher, sees that if you're going to recruit, if you're going to recruit young athletes, they love the idea that it can be that, yes, you're going to have to work hard, but you can enjoy that process along the way. And now all this nice honeymoon won't matter until you, until you get to the actual matrimony that is the, the, you know, the football season. And if you have too many losses, all this stuff will go by the board really fast. So we're going to, you know, this, this theory that Taggart's bringing to FSU is still about going to be tested. But right now, the initial reviews in terms of the feedback from the current players, the feedback from the former players, the prospective recruiting classes, it's, a, it's an incredible feel-good experience for all the stakeholders at FSU, from the players, the coaching staff, and the fans and alum of the school who feel like Taggart is you know, making, it, making it fun to be a Florida State football fan again. Now we just have to win just like we did under Bobby Bowden. Well, it sounds like there's great alignment across the board. And when you named all the different stakeholders, those are all key players and making sure everyone believes in the approach and, and goes, um, you know, full throttle in that direction. And certainly you're seeing some of the early uh, proof by the recruiting class because it's resonating with the, the talent side of it. And then the, the question for you is, do you think that the same overall umbrella of culture that, that's making it fun for people who want to be engaged with the program to come to the program Will that translate to winning, in your opinion? I, I am confident. I mean, maybe I'm just caught up in the honeymoon phase. I mean, and, and, and I, and I got to say, I want to back up and say seven years ago or eight years ago, I was also very confident when Jimbo Fisher took the job because I think, you know, by, as, as great as Bobby Bowden had been, they had clearly gone off the rails by the end, of, you know, after, you know, during the 2000s, what FSU fans refer to as the lost decade. And so they hadn't had one top five team for nine years after having 14 consecutive top five teams. And Fisher really did come in and immediately, you know, bring in the Nick Saban process to FSU and it, and it yielded huge dividends culminating in the national title and maybe one of the best teams in college football history in 2013. But then it stagnated, right? That's the real question. Why did it stagnate after that point? And, 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 and it, it was clear that Fisher was no longer feeling good at FSU and it didn't seem like a very good fit from our point of view. And I think uh, what I'm really curious about here, and I'm, I'm tr maybe I'm Pollyannish, I'm an FSU fan, but I, I really like the idea that you look to make the process is something that players actually want to do as opposed to having to do, right? In, in philosophical terms, play naturally evolves into work as you get better at what you do. This is John Dewey, by the way. 
But the, but if you don't like doing it, if you force your kid to play sports when they don't want to play, it becomes labor. It becomes a chore. And so on, on, a, on, and I think in the old days, football players accepted it was labor. It was a chore. And I think players nowadays don't buy into that the same way. And I think Taggart is, uh, is on to something profoundly important that, you know, that, that in, in now, you know, but again, the test will still has to be whether your team wins and they're successful by other measures as well. But, but I, and so, I, but I, right now I'm as an FSU fan, I'm very optimistic about it. And kind of, kind of a final question here. Do you have examples of the ways in which um, he's laying out some of the concepts from our blueprint that show that fun is really part of the process and part of the structure in the way that the coaching and practices and all of that are going right now? Hmm. Um, well, I think it, let's, let's, let's talk about, you know, the mottos he's actually brought in uh, the, to the team. So he's basically had three mottos, right? That it, one is uh, never make excuses. And the second is that you you never blame anyone else. In other words, you're responsible. And then the third one is do something, <laughs> which I find a little vague because, but I, I think it gets to the idea of it's better to commit errors of commission than an omission. Right. And so it, so he's, he's trying to really, you know, I think this speaks back to what Jimbo Fisher at the end, I think he felt like at Oregon under Helfrich by the end, that there was basically a lack of team cohesion that people were, there was too much finger pointing, too much blaming other people. And so I think he felt to try that, that the precondition for having fun, so to speak, was to actually, you know, is, is that that need to be reconciled with a sense of self, you know, ownership and accountability, right? And also just the, that idea of activity, that you don't stand around, you don't be passive. And so I, again, I think he thinks that very much can fit into this model. But, he, but so he thinks hard, he's trying to square a circle from a lot of coaches' point of view. A lot of coaches don't think fun and work go together real well, whereas Taggart is suggesting they can go together really well. And I want to throw in one other thing that every FSU fan will remember, <laughs> which is notice that these are process you know, you know, essentially, if you think about it, there's if all all mottos have to do with product. I mean, with with the product process or relationship, right? So, a relationship might be Anson Dorrance in North Carolina when he says they don't know how much you know till they know how much you care. There are lots of really funny and misguided ones about making the motto about results. So, uh, my favorite might be at Duke in 1979. There, they had a new coach named Red Wilson, and they and the motto was "Red means go." And they went two and nine that next season. In the nineteen in 1980, the bumper sticker they put out was Duke football, 1980. <laughs> they sort of learned. And uh, even Bill Walsh, the first year he was at San Francisco, they were two and 14. So the motto the second year was roaring back. And when they went two and 14 again, one angry fan said in a letter that, that said, maybe next year our motto should be don't get our hopes up. <laughs> so those now Florida State in 1988, after the 87 season that you asked me about, they were went into the season ranked number two in the country, and their motto was unfinished business because they had lost that game to Miami 26-25 on a missed two-point conversion. And they played Miami in the first game of the year. They put out a famous rap video called the Seminole Rap Video, Unfinished Business. They lost 31 to nothing, and then that motto was sort of out the window. <laughs> and so, coaches, I would really recommend process-related <laughs> mottos. Right. So, so Nick Saban, for example, says, never let your, your opponent determine your level of effort. If you want to prepare to win a championship, prepare to win the next play. 
right? Because I think process will take you to your product, but but going to product ten, tends to tell people you know, has this implicit way of minimizing the process. Now I should say, in eighty seven, eighty eight. When the Lakers beat the Celtics, Josh, to win the title in 87, the first thing Pat Riley did was say, we're going to repeat when no team had repeated since the Celtics in 69. And so I'll say two things about that. One is that was a great product motto because he wanted to put that pressure on them. He knew with Kareem and Magic and James Worthy, he wanted to put that weight on them. And so I think there can be a place for that. And the last thing it, of course, shows us is this is, you know, get back to qualitative versus quantitative. This is a block, as much art as science. And Riley understood the art of what was going to motivate his players and light, light something under them in a way. But I would still say most of the time, you need a process-related motto if you're going to be successful. Yeah, what's really interesting to me is I, I think you're absolutely right. Here's a really nice, innovative example of a different kind of culture that follows outside the mainstream for football, right? This idea of a fun culture, a fun process to get to the, to the end. And in a lot of ways, if that's well communicated and clearly understood, is going to be a great recruiting advantage. It's going to be a great way to um, use as a motivator for a particular set of athletes. And yeah. he may be in, in the mainstream and that, as you're seeing generationally, there may be more of a recruiting base to draw from that want to have fun. Right. And, and, and you haven't talked very much about Oregon. But I do think keeping the uh, a core of Taggart staff and Mario Cristobal, who played at the U, and uh, and and in the basic the basic style of play that has defined Oregon, I think that it, you know they they I think they they're going to try to continue that philosophy as well here on the West Coast. And as much as I think Taggart is a, it could be a very charismatic person, unique person, those ideas transcend him. And I, and I actually think you'll see, I think you'll see Oregon embrace those while also embracing the other things that have built this culture, you know, since Mike Bellotti, you know, you know, sort of took over as coach after Brooks, after Rich Brooks left after the Rose Bowl win. It's funny when one measure that you could use to evaluate if the culture is being implemented and it could look different in two different things is, is looking at penalties in the game. And yeah. if you were to look during the Chip Kelly era at Oregon, you'd see a, a real small number of penalties given that attention to detail and the disciplinarian approach, right? And yeah. with Coach yeah. Taggart at Oregon, <laughs> they were one of the leaders in penalties. But when you hear what you're talking about around expression and do something, it could be that he might view those penalties not in the moment as a great thing, but actually not as an alarming indicator because you are empowering people to take some risk and, and to do something, whereas a more disciplinarian coach, you look at that same measure and be concerned from a culture right. standpoint. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point. But I I, I got to tell you, as a, watching Oregon commit all those penalties last year sort of drove me nuts. And, and so FSU fans, I can tell you it's going to drive you a little nuts this year. But I do think it's part of that do something attitude. And the other thing is, especially at Florida State, Florida State, despite all the talent they had last year under Jimbo Fisher, ran one of the slowest offenses in the country in terms of time between plays. And so they're going to, this is going to be about as dramatic a change as you can imagine. And so if Oregon had problem transitioning to what Taggart was doing, it might be really bad at FSU this coming year. There's still uncertainty about the quarterback position. They're talking about, and it's unclear whether the favorite James Blackman is really ideally suited for this kind of offense. And there might be a lot of growing pains this coming year because of that. But I, I think as years go by, 
Taggart's methods will they'll get more refined and they'll get used to playing the game so quickly. But I do think you're right. I, you know, I think it's a really great point that it's also just part of you know the University of Miami was the same way, right? They they were they really they were big on individual expression, and there there of course some infamous games where they committed a ton of penalties. But as much as I hate hate to say it as an FSU fan, from you know from '87 to '92. Miami, you know, got our, got the best as good as we were. Top four finishes. Miami got the better of us five out of six of those years. So it was, you know, it was very, it was very, very they, they, that that culture works for them. And I also think it works for football in Florida for deeper reasons that we might want to, you know, might, might require a whole episode unto itself. <laughs> it can, and, and as we wrap here, uh, a final thought from me is that I, I really think what's such a nice example, and, and you bringing to to the forefront in this is that it's a different culture and, but he's doing it on purpose and it's a deliberate culture and he knows yeah. how to build culture and he's a genius at it. And whether or not it'll translate to winning will, will ultimately play out and we'll decide whether or not fun is a four letter word instead of a three letter word. Um, but I, I'm pretty hopeful as you are that that type of deliberate approach to culture and get everyone aligned is a pretty good start in terms of success on the field and off the field. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Willie is a man with a plan. And he had that when he came to Oregon. And, and I think he would have been happy to stay here a long time. And he's now bringing that to Florida, you know, to Florida State. And I think he thinks it fits particularly well within the culture of football in the in the state of Florida in the South. And so you know, it'll, it's going to be one of the more fascinating stories. And we'll see what, by the way, what Jimbo Fisher does at Texas A&M where they also look like they're having a very good like top 10 recruiting class initially by the way and the problem he has is externals he can't control the fact that he's in the same division as auburn alabama and lsu and if they haven't won a national title since 1939 and they brought him in and paid 75 million for 10 get 10 guaranteed years because they think he's going to do what even bear bryant didn't manage to do before he left and when that's win a national title to me if he can win the sec west more than once that would be a tremendous accomplishment in the context of where Texas A&M's history is and what the obstacles they face are. So, in in it will you know it'll be interesting to see whether he can bring the same initial to success to to Aggie Land as he did to Tallahassee because he he resuscitated a very very moribund program at FSU when he came there. And that should FSU fans once we get over the the disbelief that he wanted to leave us. That's something I hope that it, I hope there's a one day there's a Jimbo Fisher day at FSU because he put this program back on the right track and he made it possible for Taggart to walk into an incredibly good situation filled with good recruiting classes. Well, Ken, a pleasure as always, and I look forward to our next conversation. I, I as well. Thank you, Josh. Bye.